Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing you news and opinion pieces from a variety of sources. This one's being pre-recorded in early September for the listening week that begins the 16th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey, beginning with local news from Denver, reading from the Denver Urban Spectrum. This was posted August 25th, written by Ruby Jones. The Blair Caldwell African American Research Library reopens after renovations. Positioned at the gateway to the historic Five Points neighborhood, the Blair Caldwell African American Research Library is one of only five public libraries in the United States whose mission is the collection and preservation of black history. The Legacy Project, envisioned during the leadership of Denver's first black mayor, archives an abundance of cultural contributions to Colorado and the West, On Monday, August 7th, the treasured institution reopened its doors after a 15-month closure for renovations, just in time for its 20-year anniversary. When it first opened in 2003, Blair Caldwell was a much-needed hub for education and leisure. A reception hosted by the Honorable Mayor Wellington Wellington Webb was held outside the front entrance to inaugurate and celebrate the facility. Pride and excitement buzzed in the air as musical talents and poets ordained its presence. The new library would honor the past and pave the way to the future with opportunities to learn from the rich history behind its walls. On Saturday, August 12th, days after the long-awaited reopening, Representatives of Denver's Library Commission and city officials gathered with members of the community to commemorate the 20 years that have since passed. Once again, Webb spoke at the reception, but this time he challenged attendees with a bit of historical trivia to re-emphasize the importance of the research library's use. Who came, pardon me, who can name the first black principal in Denver? he asked the crowd. With only a few members of the crowd timidly raising their hands, Webb pointed out that every hand should have been raised, with a reminder that if history is not shared with the next generation, it may become lost forever. He warned, We cannot let our history be destroyed, lost, stolen, strayed, or forgotten. A Lasting Legacy The city of Denver elected Webb to its highest office in 1991 as mounting tensions over the growing crime rate demanded an innovative, powerful response. His first term was marred by events culminating in the 1993 Summer of Violence, but his commitment to transformative justice and economic advancement positioned him as the front-runner for re-election in 1995. Efforts to restore safety and rebuild from the egregious culture of violence that had plagued the city's streets were successful, leading to his re-election to a third and final term in 1999. For Webb, who taught black studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, 
and his wife Wilma, who served 13 years in Colorado's state legislature and carried the bill to make Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday a state holiday. History was an important focus area which informed their work and service to the community. The Webbs were concerned that the written history of black people in Denver and Colorado was not being adequately maintained at any local museums or historical sites. They discovered that much of the remaining artifacts and documents were in the private possession of political leaders, churches, community-based nonprofit organizations, and individuals. There's so much history, and we need to capture that for young people, the former mayor said. So much of it is in boxes or basements or in our heads. Together, the pair dreamed up a vision for an institution that would preserve and showcase the many incredible contributions made by members of the black community from early settlement to the present. Wilma and I came up with the idea of building a library that could speak to the contributions made by African Americans in Denver, Colorado, and in the Rocky Mountain West, he stated. When we conceptually came up with the idea, there were no blueprints, there was no money, there was nothing. In 1997, Webb met with Rick Ashton, chair of the Denver Library Commission, along with Charles Zine, Terry Nelson, and Gwendolyn Crenshaw, who worked as a staff members, oh, pardon me, who worked as staff members at the Central Library, to discuss the unprecedented project He endeavored to move the existing Five Points Library location from the historic Glenarm, YMCA, and build a museum above it. Within two years, plans for a library dedicated to the collection of local and national black history and culture were approved by the Denver Library Commission. It would be the country's fifth and most recent library dedication to the preservation of black history preceded by the Broward County African American Research Library, which opened six months prior to Blair Caldwell in 2002. Nelson and Crenshaw got right to work, devoting themselves to the complex task of creating materials for the library. Much of our collection has come from individuals and organizations, Nelson pointed out. Among our early commitments was videotaping oral histories of senior citizens who had made important contributions, as well as those individuals who were the first African Americans in their careers and other endeavors. The library project was shaped into a repository for written and visual documents, a trailblazing establishment that Webb envisioned as a community stronghold in an area that would likely be subject to gentrification years after completion, he insisted that its location be perfectly situated on Welton Street, just north of Park Avenue, and at the well-known entry of Five Points. A gateway to the past, Blair Caldwell shares a plaza with Sonny Lawson Park, the first ball field in the city to host the Negro League's games, and the first park in Denver to be named after a black person in 1972. Lawson, a district executive for the Democratic Party in East Denver, owned and operated Radio Pharmacy on Welton Street for 50 years. The library's location is pivotal to acknowledging Five Points' remarkable history. 
once known as the Harlem of the West, many of black pardon me in many of Denver's black residents were corralled in the area due to discriminatory redlining practices. Yet the strength of the community was profound. In addition to being an economic corridor with plenty of black-owned businesses, the area was home to historic churches and a plethora of bars and clubs. Renowned jazz musicians traveled to the Mile High City to perform and were relegated to lodging at the Rossonian Hotel due to segregation from the city's other hotels. Webb forecasted the impending gentrification of Five Points due to its proximity to downtown Denver and knew that the preservation of history belonged in the exact spot where history had occurred. At the anniversary celebration, he recognized that his predictions had turned out to be true. The area has undergone drastic development within the last decade, and despite efforts to revitalize some of the historically significant buildings and businesses, very few traces of the past remain. Gone are the days of the pig ear sandwiches at Zona's, the twangy hot sauce of Capri Lounge, and fried chicken, and the juicy barbecue at the original Burgers and Bones. But the library is a constant reminder of yesteryear and a location where memories are kept safe. A new era. The Blair Caldwell African American Research Library is named for Omar Blair, the Denver School Board's first black president, who played an instrumental role in ending segregation within the Denver Public School District, and Elvin Caldwell, the city's first black city council member. Webb pointed out that there could have been a very different name for the library altogether. Denver City Councilman Ed Thomas wanted to name the library after Wilma Webb, he revealed. She chose not to have it named after her and said it should be elders from the community. While the main floor of the institution operates a full-service library, the top two levels are reserved for the preservation of a black history for which the building is purposed. Level two features the collection, archives, and research library along with a reading room where visitors can explore an array of photographs, manuscript collections, letters, and diaries that are not available for checkout. Level 3 houses the Western Legacies Museum, with artifacts and memorabilia detailing the settlement of black pioneers and contributions made by modern heroes. The 7,000-square-foot exhibition space includes an African-American legacy corridor, and a leadership hall. Having worked hand-in-hand to bring their vision to life, the Webbs are both memorialized for their critical role in the inception of the library with the Wilma Webb Research Archives room on the second level, and an endearing replica and exhibition detailing Webb's mayoral campaign trail. The Charles R. Cousins Gallery, named for a man who moved to Denver as a Union Pacific Railroad dining car waiter, and rose to fame as an investor and philanthropist, shares the third level and features exhibits from local artists. After its first renovation since the building's completion in 2003, Blair Caldwell contains an updated HVAC system and revamped main level. However, the exterior and top two floors remain unchanged. Dexter Nelson II, the new museum and archives supervisor, has plans to update the museum with additions from the last 20 years of history. Nelson II 
who previously worked as the curator of Black History and Cultural Heritage at History Colorado, will utilize community feedback to determine what inclusions are needed. Blair Caldwell offers tours of its second and third levels to library visitors and individuals who wish to learn the history of the historic neighborhood. First Floor Transformation With the majority of renovations being done to the library's main level, Blair Caldwell has a fresh new appearance that blends modernized touches with aesthetics that reflect the third-level museum. The beloved arch and oil-painted mural titled Freedom's Legacy by Kenyan artist Yvonne Munday remains unchanged at the library's entrance. The artwork features images of prominent local and national black leaders and a stunning western landscape. Upon the mural's completion in 2003, Monday made the following statement. The people in the painting are displaying the figures from the civil rights movement who fought and died for our right to be free. The true power in the piece is not only the visual imagery of some of the greatest African Americans to fight for civil rights, but also in the individuals who carry those images— It is also in the hope to reignite the fire that is the legacy called freedom that African Americans struggled their entire existence for. On the other side of the arch, a comfortable seating area has been created overlooking the new open floor plan. The circulation desk, previously situated near the the front doors, has been relocated to another area, The bookcases have been updated with enlarged artwork displays of Colorado's black history and culture. One of the new features on the first floor is the African-American Circulating Collection, which contains some of the books that were previously maintained as non-circulating in the second-level archives. This new collection makes more fiction and non-fiction titles accessible to the public. The children's area has received updates, including a public art piece created by local artist Sam McNeil. The installation contains several tables decorated with artwork portraying children's outside activities and pages from children's books. To go along with the renovation, the library has created a new activity schedule for children. Storytime will become a weekly activity. We will also arrange occasional visits by authors of children's books said newly appointed branch supervisor Jamaica Lewis. A space for young adults has been added to the main floor, which Lewis says will also be used for gaming, reading, and discussions. Finally, the library is hoping to meet the needs of the community with new study rooms and updated community rooms that are available for public events. Celebrating the past, looking to the future. Funding for the renovation project was made possible by the Elevate Denver Bond, which was passed by Denver voters in 2017 for the Central Library and 10 branch libraries throughout the city. Additional funding was made available from the Denver Public Library Fund's Strong Library, Strong Denver program. The MC of the anniversary celebration, James Davis Jr., who works as a branch supervisor, of the Bear Valley Branch Library, greeted the audience with a strong message. This is a time to reflect on the past and the future, he said. Recognized for her role in Blair Caldwell's Caldwell's early organization, Nelson, affectionately referred to as a founding librarian by Lewis, 
was honored at the event and received a plaque commemorating her efforts. She recently retired after 45 years with the Denver Public Library System, with 25 years spent nurturing Blair Caldwell and the Five Points community. The 20th anniversary is a fulfillment of the dream of 1997, Webb declared, adding, There is still work to be done. There are still stories that need to be told and written. Our next article comes from 2190, written by Zaina Allen, posted August 26th. Black Breastfeeding Week, a lactation consultant chimes in. Breastfeeding as a black woman can oftentimes feel like a challenge. Luckily, Black Breastfeeding Week helps highlight and celebrate the health benefits empowerment and community engagement birth-giving individuals can experience. From August 25th to September 1st, Black Breastfeeding Week helps black birthing people understand more about the beauty of their bodies and its functions, the initiative was launched over nine years ago by Kimberly Seals Allers, Kadata Green, and Anaya Sangodele Ayoka. It was developed to promote awareness and highlight the special challenges and triumphs of being black and breastfeeding. According to a study by BMC Public Health on breastfeeding rates among American women, black women were the least likely to report any breastfeeding. This could be due to many factors, including a lack of knowledge, support, and community. Celebrities like Victoria Monet and Tia Maori have even shared their breastfeeding experiences. The actress took to Instagram to share her journey and explain that she was able to find ease once she had support. During my second pregnancy, Instagram was around, and it was actually through here where I learned a lot more about breastfeeding, she explained. Also, where I met a huge community of women who were all so supportive and encouraged me to continue on. And during the second time, I found that I was able to breastfeed Cairo for 13 months. 2190 sat down with Darian Roberts, lactation consultant and co-founder of Humbled by Motherhood, to talk all things surrounding breastfeeding as a black birthing person. Challenges there are many challenges that come with breastfeeding. One of the most common things that I see particularly is in the hospital, Roberts began to explain. If they are giving a hospital birth, they're more likely to just be offered formula in the hospital without asking. It's just the assumption that we're not going to, and therefore, offered formula. She goes on to explain that it comes from an implicit bias, and there are typically no outward-presenting symptoms that call for a mother to choose formula over breastfeeding. There are several reports that showcase how black women are often mistreated in the medical field, specifically prenatal and postpartum mothers. So the choice to suggest formula to new black mothers by the hospital staff doesn't come as a surprise to Roberts. I've also seen a lot of older generations, and mostly black culture, that Oh, pardon me. I've also seen a lot of older generations and the like, mostly black culture, that don't hold like the same reverence for breastfeeding, she continued. 
It's looked at as more convenient and easier to use infant formula. I think we're just less likely to pursue prenatal education about breastfeeding. And we know that prenatal education actually increases the initiation and the duration of breastfeeding. A place of comfortability. It can be difficult for mothers to breastfeed when doing it alone. Even Roberts shared that breastfeeding her first child was difficult because she didn't have much prior knowledge. However, she was able to rely on her sister who went through breastfeeding her own child already. I would say finding community is the best thing. I'm a big advocate for finding all different levels of support if this is the choice that mothers want to make, she urged. So that means being maybe tapping into some peer support, finding some friends, finding any parent groups or mom groups that are specific to breastfeeding. She explained that the bigger breastfeeding organizations aren't necessarily the best for finding support because they lack representation and diversity. Social media, however, is a great tool, she suggests. There are many black lactation consultants online who share tips and tricks for birthing people to follow and learn more about the best breastfeeding practices. In her own journey, Roberts experienced her own issues. She was told to throw out her milk, and she found herself producing pink milk due to bleeding. She found her journey with her first child to be difficult and challenging. Her aforementioned sister helped her to feel comfortable advocating for herself to her non-black lactation consultant. By the time she had her second child, she was able to find a community which made her journey easier. She was prepping for her lactation board exam at the time of her second birth as well. Roberts felt as though she was a textbook ready to take on breastfeeding, but her colleagues explained to her that she couldn't treat herself. So she had no other choice but to lean into her support system, and she proudly exclaimed that both of her children had been breastfed for over two years. The first thing you knew is Pardon me, the first thing you need to do is find support, she repeated. Next article was written for the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington back in late August. This was posted August 25th from Time magazine. Sixty years after the March on Washington, America's progress hinges on liberating black women. This is written by Andrea Waters King and Jennifer Jones Austin. In her 1892 masterpiece, A Voice from the South, by a black woman of the South, scholar Anna Julia Cooper wrote, Only the black woman can say when and where I enter in the quiet, undisputed dignity of my womanhood, without violence and without suing or special patronage, then and there the whole Negro race enters with me. Just a generation removed from slavery, Cooper, who is often called the mother of black feminism, understood that the progress of African Americans and of American civilization is impossible without black women. Only when black women are no longer denigrated and diminished, but rather are truly elevated by all in society to their rightful status of equal dignity and divinity, and lives freely and fully as all men and women, can the black race and all of human race flourish to its fullest potential? For as long as black women are devalued and delegitimized, so too will be humanity. Cooper's words still ring true today. 
131 years ago, President Abraham Lincoln promised all black Americans the right to live peacefully and be justly paid for their labor. In 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and other civil rights leaders marched hundreds of thousands of Americans to the nation's capital, demanding America make good on that promise. Yet 60 years later, black women remain disproportionately undervalued and mistreated by persisting racism and sexism, their families bearing the heaviest burdens. In the 1960s, the historic practice of discounting women's contributions to the workplace was perpetuated by a predominantly male labor force that especially undercounted work performed by non-white women. Work opportunities for women of color were scarce. The only jobs available to them were domestic, labor-related, the lowest-paid occupation type in 1963. Today, while no longer restricted solely to domestic labor, black and brown women remain significantly segregated in the labor force, severely underrepresented in professions that typically pay more and overly represented in occupations with lower average salaries. The latter of these jobs, roles such as child care workers, social workers, and substance abuse counselors, are critical to a healthy and functioning society. Yet their wages don't even begin to cover basic living expenses. According to the July 2023 Federation of Protestant Welfare Agencies report, black women's work garners an average wage of just $30,789. For Latinas, they get a measly $23,196 annually. In New York City, one of the most expensive cities in the world, over 44,000 women of color are contracted full-time human services workers. Roughly two-thirds of these workers earned below the city's near-poverty threshold in 2019 and made 20 to 35 percent less in median annual wages and benefits than workers in comparable positions in the public and private sectors. These disparities extend to education even more even with comparable or identical college degrees, a black person makes an average 20% less in wages each year than a white person. For black women, the pay gap is even more stark. As noted in a report by Compensation Data and Software Company Payscale, black women are the highest educated group, yet only with a master's degree does she begin to earn more than a white man with an associate degree. It's a tragic fact that black Women must earn three times as many degrees as a white man to earn the same pay, let alone aim for slightly more pay. While earning her degrees, a black woman also often incurs more debt. Systemic racism has restricted black families' ability to grow assets and pass on generational wealth, leaving the average black student to graduate with $25,000 more student loan debt than the typical white student. Pay inequities upon entering the workforce exacerbate the inequality. A recent 2023 data from the FPWA shows that four years after graduation, 48% of black students owe an average of 12.5% more than they borrowed. On the other hand, 83% of white students owe 12% less than they borrowed. Occupation segregation, wage deprivation, and debt accumulation hit the black community hard. 
coupled with enduring discriminatory laws, policies, and practices that all but ensure the over-policing and mass incarceration of black men, the absence of these men and their potential earnings from the household is keenly felt by their families and communities. Today, over half of all black children live in households where black women are the sole breadwinners. Compared to less than 17% of white children, these black children often depend on only one income, which is frequently insufficient to cover all household expenses. As if on autopilot, the cycle of poverty repeats itself. Lower wages and student loan debt, plus the higher likelihood of living on a single income, result in persisting income and wealth inequity reinforcing poverty from childhood until the end of life. We see this devastating loop play out among today's youth. One in three black children live in poverty, in contrast to less than one in ten white children. Despite centuries of having their worth diminished, black women have boldly and unapologetically led and contributed to the development and progress of America. From reformers like Mary Ann Shad Carey and Mary Church Terrell leading the early universal suffrage movement, advocating for the 15th and 19th Amendments, all the while being excluded from both black men's and white women's suffrage movements, to black women today such as Dr. Kismekia Corbett, whose work as an immunologist led to the development of the vaccine to reduce the spread of COVID-19 and in the global pandemic. Denying black women's worth robs not just their families, but the nation. Decades-long practices of devaluing black women, their work, and their worth reveal both the intent and the impact of structural and institutional racism exacted upon them. This pattern signifies the ever-growing threat to the black community. Further, it signals the urgency to continue marching and taking actions to demand fairness and justice, If black women were awarded the value they deserve, the entire nation would take an instrumental step forward in realizing its fullest potential. Next article comes from the AP Press, written by Russ Bynum, posted August 24th. Savannah picks emancipated black woman to replace name of slavery advocate on Historic Square. Dateline Savannah, Georgia. Georgia's oldest city, steeped in history predating the American Revolution, made an historic break with its slavery era past Thursday as Savannah's city council voted to rename a downtown square in honor of a black woman who taught formerly enslaved people to read and write. Susie King Taylor is the first person of color whose name will adorn one of Savannah's 23 squares, It's the first time in 140 years that Savannah has approved a name change for one of the picturesque park-like squares that are treasured features of the original plan for the city founded in 1733. It's one thing to make history, it's something else to make sense, and in this case, we're making both. Savannah Mayor Van Johnson said he noted that five black women sit on the nine-member city council something people of Taylor's era would, quote, never have fathomed. Public squares and monuments in the southern city have long been dedicated almost exclusively to Georgia's colonial founders, former governors, fallen war heroes, and other prominent white men. It's time for a woman named Square, said Pat Gunn, 
a Savannah tour guide who led a group of activists that pushed for three years to have the square renamed for Taylor. The oak-shaded square that will bear Taylor's name near the southern edge of Savannah's downtown district, historic district, pardon me, has spent 170 years named for John C. Calhoun, a former U.S. vice president from South Carolina who was a vocal supporter of slavery in the decades preceding the Civil War. The Savannah City Council voted last November to get rid of the name Calhoun Square, following a campaign by Guns Coalition, which argued he was unworthy of the honor in a city where 54% of the population is black. City officials stripped any signs with Calhoun's name from the square immediately following that first vote. The space sat nameless for nine months as City Hall collected recommendations for a new name. Some in Savannah strongly opposed the change, Resident David Tootle said Calhoun's support for slavery was dead wrong, but shouldn't disqualify him as an historical figure who served as vice president under two administrations. Tootle, followed, pardon me, Tootle filed suit last month, arguing that removing signs with Calhoun's name from the square violated a 2019 Georgia law passed to protect Confederate memorials and other public monuments. Toodle sought an injunction blocking city officials from voting on a new name, but never got a ruling from the judge. It's not about Calhoun, said Toodle, who is black. It's the fact that we're erasing history. We can't erase somebody out of the history books and take their names off things because we don't agree with them and thought they were bad. The mayor and council also voted to place a marker in the square explaining that it initially bore Calhoun's name and why they chose to remove it. Born to enslaved parents in 1848, Taylor was secretly taught to read and write as a girl living in Savannah. As a teenager during the Civil War, she fled to Georgia's St. Simons Island, which was occupied by Union troops. Taylor worked as a nurse for the Union Army, which in turn helped her organize a school to teach emancipated children and adults. After the war, Taylor set up two more schools for black students, Before her death in 1912, Taylor became the only black woman to publish a memoir of her life during the war. The city council chose Taylor from a diverse group. Finalists also included a pastor who, in 1777, founded one of America's oldest black churches in Savannah, a civil rights leader whose efforts peacefully desegregated the city in 1963, the women who kick-started Savannah's historic preservation movement in the 50s, and an Army special operations pilot who saved his crew but perished in a 2014 helicopter crash in Savannah. Another article on the topic of renaming Confederate-related memorial things. This comes from the Wall Street Journal print edition, Saturday, Sunday, August 19th and 20th. Save the Confederate Memorial at Arlington, written by Jim Webb. Jim Webb was a Marine infantry officer in Vietnam, a Navy secretary, and a U.S. senator from Virginia. He is a distinguished fellow at Notre Dame's International Security Center. In 1898, 33 after, pardon me, 33 years after the end of the Civil War, the Spanish-American War brought a sudden, unanticipated harmony and unity to a country that had been riven by war 
and a punitive post-war military occupation which failed at wholesale societal reconstruction. In the South, American flags flew again as the sons of Confederate soldiers volunteered to fight, even if it meant wearing the once-hated Yankee blue, President William McKinley presciently seized this moment to mend a generation's sectional divide. McKinley understood the Civil War as one who had lived it, having served four years in the 23rd Ohio Infantry, enlisting as a private, and discharged in 1865 as a brevet major. He knew the steps to take to bring the country fully together again. As an initial signal, he selected three Civil War veterans to command the Cuba campaign, two William Rufus Shafter, given overall command of the Cuban operation, and H.W. Lawton, who led the 2nd Infantry Division, the first soldiers to land in the war had received the Medal of Honor fighting for the Union. The other, Fighting Joe Wheeler, the legendary Confederate cavalry general, led the cavalry, cavalry units in Cuba after being elected to Congress in 1880, from Alabama and working hard to bring national reconciliation. Four days after the Spanish-American War ended, McKinley proclaimed in Atlanta, In the spirit of fraternity, we should share with you in the care of the graves of Confederate soldiers. In that call for national unity, the Confederate memorial was born. It was designed by internationally respected sculptor Moses Jacob Ezekiel, a Confederate veteran and the first Jew, pardon me, first Jewish graduate of the Virginia Military Institute who asked to be buried at the memorial in Arlington National Cemetery. On one face of the memorial is the finest explanation of wartime service perhaps ever written by a Confederate veteran who later became a Christian minister. It says, not for fame or reward, nor for place or for rank, not lured by ambition or goaded by necessity, but in simple obedience to duty as they understood it, these men suffered all, sacrificed all, dared all, and died. But now in this new world of woke, it says here, unless measures are taken very soon, by the end of this year the Confederate memorial will be gone. With surprising overbroadness, the 2021 National Defense Authorization Act passed in the midst of national racial and political upheaval, empowered a naming commission to, quote, remove all names, symbols, displays, monuments, and paraphernalia that honor or commemorate the Confederate States of America, or any person who served voluntarily with the Confederate States of America from all assets of the Departments of Defense. As part of that provision, Arlington National Cemetery has been ordered by Defense Department officials to remove the memorial by the end of this year, though the order is reportedly under review. Having spent four years as a full committee counsel in the House and six years as a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, I cannot imagine that the removal of this memorial, conceived and built with the sole purpose of healing the wounds of the Civil War and restoring national harmony, could be within the intent of a sweeping sentence placed inside a nearly trillion-dollar piece of legislation. The larger and ultimate question reaches further into America's atrophied understanding of the Civil War itself. What was it that Union Army veteran McKinley understood about the Confederate soldiers who opposed his infantry units on the battlefield 
that eludes today's monument smashers and ad hominem destroyers of historical reputations. McKinley's fellow soldiers understood that during the Civil War, four slave states remained in the Union, Maryland, Delaware, Missouri, and Kentucky, and none of them were required to give up slavery during the entire war, and that in every major battle of the Civil War, slave owners in the Union Army fought against non-slave owners in the Confederate Army. They understood that President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation did not free the slaves in those states or in the areas of the South that had already been conquered. The proclamation freed only slaves in the areas taken after it was issued, and in the eyes of a Confederate soldier, if Lincoln had not freed slaves in the Union, why should the soldier be vilified for supposedly fighting on behalf of slavery? Many soldiers in the North and many more in the South would have understood what John Hope Franklin America's most esteemed black historian pointed out in 1860 only 5% of whites in the South owned slaves and less than 25% of whites benefited economically from slavery. An estimated 258,000 Confederate soldiers died in the war. About a third of all of those who fought for the South few owned slaves. So why did they fight? The soldier who wrote the inscription on the Confederate memorial knew, and so did President McKinley and most veterans who have fought in America's wars. In 1992, as a private citizen and veteran of the Vietnam War, I was seeking to begin a process of reconciliation with our former enemy and hosted a delegation of Vietnamese officials in Washington. One of my objectives was to encourage Hanoi finally to make peace with the South Vietnamese veterans who had fought against the North and who after the war were labeled traitors, denied any official recognition as veterans, and hundreds of thousands were imprisoned in re-education camps. To make my point, I brought them to the Confederate Memorial, pointing across the Potomac River from Arlington National Cemetery toward the Lincoln Memorial I told them the story of how America healed its wounds from the uh, our own pardon me, Civil War. The Potomac River was like the Binhai River, which divided North and South Vietnam. On the far side was our North, and here in Virginia was our South. After several bitter decades, we came together, symbolized by the memorial. If it is taken apart and removed, leaving behind a concrete slab, the burial marker of its creator and a small circle of graves, it would send a different message, one of deteriorating society, willing to erase the generosity of its past, in favor of bitterness and misunderstanding, conjured up by those who do not understand the history they seem bent on destroying. And the next one from the New York Times still in the arena of sculptures and memorials. This was posted August 30th, written by Christopher Kuo. Philadelphia asks if race of Tubman sculpture matters. A white artist was invited to design a statue of Harriet Tubman. After complaints, the city held an open call for submissions. A year ago, the city of Philadelphia invited an artist to design a statue of Harriet Tubman that would stand in front of City Hall to honor the abolitionist legacy and celebrate her connection to the city. 
Then the complaints poured in. Some incensed artists and community members argued that the city should have used a public selection process rather than awarding a commission, in part because the artist Philadelphia had selected was a white man. The city ultimately responded by ending its partnership with the artist and issuing an open call for submissions. It received 50 applications and has recently unveiled five semifinalist designs, all created by black artists. The controversy over the Tubman statue is part of a broader conversation in the art world about to what extent racial identity should matter. This summer, the New Orleans Museum of Art was criticized for appointing a white woman as its curator of African art. In 2017, protesters called out the Whitney Museum of American Art for including in its biennial a painting by Dana Schutz, a white artist, that was based on the open coffin photographs of Emmett Till, the black teenager lynched by white men in 1955. Some say that artists should have the freedom to pursue their vision on any subject, regardless of their race or ethnicity. While others believe that identity and expression are inextricably linked, and that art about black people should only be created by someone who has shared their history. We know the depth and value of our stories, said Vinnie Bagwell, a 65 year old artist from New York who is one of the five black semifinalists for the Tubman statue. It's personal for us. Bagwell said she believed that Philadelphia made the right choice by reversing its agreement with Wesley Wolford, the white designer. He, however, was dismayed by the public outcry. Art is supposed to be a universal language that transcends gender, race, and culture, said Wolford, who's 51. The idea of placing a Harriet Tubman statue in front of Philadelphia's City Hall was inspired by a traveling statue that Wolford designed in 2017 after receiving a private commission. When he posted pictures of the statue online, he said people responded enthusiastically and asked how they could see it in person. So, Wolford created an artist's proof of the statue called Journey to Freedom that has since toured 17 American cities, starting with a visit to Montgomery, Alabama in February 2020. When it was displayed in Philadelphia from January to March 2022, in honor of Tubman's 200th birthday, millions of people expressed their delight in the monument, said Kelly Lee. Executive Director of the city's Office of Arts, Culture, and the Creative Economy. Lee's office attempted to buy the statue but could not because the design was a private commission. Instead, the city decided to commission Wolford to design a new statue of Tubman for about $500,000. The contract was being finalized when local artists and community members heard the news. Hundreds of people denounced the city for commissioning Wolford instead of opening a public process that would allow local artists, particularly those who are black, to submit their work. Wolford, who grew up in rural Georgia and now lives in North Carolina, said that the critiques were mostly about his race and that he felt sidelined. I didn't have much of a voice, he said. No one wanted to hear from me. Despite the criticism, some of Tubman's relatives released a statement on the city's website in support of the artist. They wrote Harriet Tubman worked with people of all races who were like minded, and Mr. Wolford is like minded. Harriet Tubman stood for people of all races. 
Initially, the city also stuck with Wofford. Philadelphia would not be commissioning this permanent Harriet Tubman statue if not for the public's positive response to Wofford's temporary statue, Lee told the Philadelphia Inquirer at the time. It would be inappropriate for the city to bring in a different artist to recreate the artistic expression of Wesley Wofford. In August 2022, the city reversed course and publicly asked for new design proposals for the Tubman statue. In an interview with the New York Times, Lee said it was critically important to provide opportunities for artists of color to tell their own stories. The city just wanted to have a statue that everyone could be proud of, said Lee, so we made the decision to listen to the public again and issue an open call. The city has opened a public survey for people to vote on the five semifinalist designs until Friday night. The public feedback will be taken into account when a committee composed of members of Tubman's family, historians, educators, public artists, and other stakeholders selects the winning design in October. Race was not a specific criterion in the selection process, said Lee. The city selected the five semifinalists, she said, by examining photos of the designs and asking the artists about Tubman's importance. We looked at the artists who applied to ask about whether or not they reflected the diversity of the Philadelphia community, said Lee. Wolford said he considered entering the competition with one of his designs, but thought he would have an unfair advantage because of his previous discussions with the city. He said he did offer a larger version of Journey to Freedom, at cost, if Philadelphia needed a fallback plan. Bagwell's design, titled Harriet Tubman City of Liberty, shows a nine-foot-tall Tubman when she first arrives in Philadelphia at age 29. Standing with her palms open to the sky, the untitled design from Richard Blake shows Tubman holding a lantern, a pistol tucked in her belt as she walks beneath the Liberty Bell. A design by Tanda Francis, 45, called Together in Freedom, depicts several silhouettes of Tubman over a keystone. An untitled design by Alvin Pettit shows Tubman bent in a praying stance as if she is leaning into the wind. And a design by Basil Watson called Keep Going depicts Tubman leading people escaping from slavery toward freedom. Watson, 65, said that while he was glad a black person would be designing the sculpture, it was still unfortunate that we have to contemplate race when we are looking at these historical monuments. But Francis said it was only fitting that a black person would be responsible for the city's monument to Tubman. Francis said, she's an ancestor, we should be telling our story. To close out this week's readings, I'm going to continue with a list that I began a couple of weeks ago for audiobooks narrated by Black Voices. This is written by Angela Johnson for TheRoot.com, originally published August 3rd. From Trevor Noah, Born a Crime, Stories from a South African Childhood. If you're suffering from Trevor Noah withdrawal, Check out the audiobook version of Born a Crime, the award-winning memoir from the comedian and former The Daily Host Show, host of The Daily Host Show, pardon me, 
The audio version brings the story of his childhood in South Africa during a time when his parents' interracial relationship was considered a crime to life. Besides, who doesn't love listening to Trevor's voice? Shuri, S-H-U-R-I, a Black Panther novel. Written by Nick Stone, narrated by Anika Noni Rose. If you loved actress Anika Noni Rose as the voice of Tiana in Disney's The Princess and the Frog, check out her narration of Shuri, a Black Panther novel, a middle-grade novel written by best-selling author Nick Stone. The story follows T'Challa's little sister as she tries to find out what's killing the plants the people of Wakanda need to survive. We have Devil in a Blue Dress, written by Walter Mosley, narrated by Michael Boatman. Set in a 1948 Los Angeles, Devil in a Blue Dress is one of renowned crime fiction writer Walter Mosley's best and the inspiration for the 1995 film starring Denzel Washington. The story follows a black war veteran whose financial prayers are answered when a white man offers to pay him to help find a missing white woman known to hang out in black jazz clubs. The gripping audiobook version is narrated by Spin City and the good wife actor Michael Boatman. The Autobiography of Malcolm X as Told to Alex Haley, written by Malcolm X, Alex Haley, narrated by Lawrence Fishburne. The Autobiography of Malcolm X is one of the most important books of our time, telling the story of his rise to become one of the most important figures in the civil rights movement. And while we can no longer hear his voice, award-winning actor Lawrence, pardon me, Lawrence Fishburne's narration is the next best thing. My Vanishing Country, a memoir, written and narrated by Bakari Sellers. My Vanishing Country is more than former South Carolina State Representative Bakari Sellers' memoir. It's a classic commentary on race relations and social justice. You will be immediately drawn in hearing in the political analyst's and attorney's own words how being raised in, pardon me, being raised by legendary activists in a small South Carolina town shaped his perspective. The Mother of Black Hollywood, a memoir, written and narrated by Jennifer Lewis. In The Mother of Black Hollywood, legendary actress Jennifer Lewis tells the story of her journey from growing up in the Midwest to becoming a star on stage and screen. Lewis keeps it real in this amazing audiobook version, sharing deeply personal details of her struggles with mental illness and sex addiction in the voice we all know and love. The last one for today, You Can't Touch My Hair and Other Things I Still Have to Explain, written and narrated by Phoebe Robinson. You Can't Touch My Hair is a seriously funny collection of essays from comedian and Two Dope Queens podcaster Phoebe Robinson. You'll love her hilarious take on being a black woman in America, including having to explain to people why they absolutely cannot touch her hair. 
And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Network for Good. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.